We're in the middle of a sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 6, and last week we looked at the what of kingdom life. We looked at the vision that Jesus gives us of his followers. He's turned, literally, he's turned the world upside down with the Beatitudes and the woes that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And um, in this new world of the kingdom that he is ushering in in his ministry and his presence, he begins then to cast a vision for what the people that follow him will look like in their daily lives. For the, kinds of, the kind of character, the kind of heart, the kind of actions that will express this kingdom life that they're now participating in and following, uh, following Jesus in. So we saw the what of kingdom life. And that was simply, uh, simply, <laughs> not simply, uh, but it was the radical message of, of loving your enemies. Praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who hate you, um, or praying for those who abuse you, blessing those who curse you. It was a, a life not just of non-response, non-retaliation, but also one of, of active engagement with those very people that make your life difficult or miserable or challenging. It was a, a radical call. So why does Jesus want us to live this way? Last week we looked at the what of kingdom life. Tonight we're going to look at the why of kingdom life, this kingdom life, this way of the cross. Why does he want us to live this way? So he starts in verse 32, having just laid out that vision of loving your enemies, and he begins to, to uh, answer some, some maybe some supposed objections or some supposed kind of reactions to this, which would say, you know, Jesus, this is just a little too radical for me. Do you have a plan B? Do you have something for somebody more like me? Something that I can actually engage in and do? And he starts to suggest that, you know, if you live life just like everybody around you, if you only love the people that love you, if you only do good to the people who do good to you, if you only lend to those to whom, from whom you expect to receive back as much, maybe more. He says, what, what good is that to you? What credit is that to you? How does that in any way make you different? Look, I've just described the life of the kingdom. It's upside down. It doesn't look anything like what the world that we, that we experience on a day-to-day looks like, feels like, is experienced like. It doesn't look like that. So he says, if you're going to live life just in the way that everybody else around you lives life, if you're only going to love those that love you, that just can't be quite right for the vision of the kingdom that I'm giving and presenting. You'll be just like everybody else in the world that's not yet upside down. The world of the the in and the out crowd, the world of the privileged and the unprivileged, the world that measures itself up by standards of intellect or or looks or wealth or whatever else, you'll look just like that. And the implication of Jesus' words in verses 32 to 34 is that you as the people of the kingdom are called to look differently from those around you. There's got to be some kind of distinction, some, some way of differentiating between you, kingdom followers, kingdom members, and the rest of the people out there. Jesus labels them, in this case, sinners, to imply that they're not in that relationship with God. You people who are just living life um, according to your own will and your own way. There's got to be a difference. That's the implied argument that Jesus is making in verses 32 to 34. Now, we get that just instinctively. I think we, we understand that 
it's easier to love the people that love us and so on and so forth. But in the first century context, this was even more radical for Jesus to say these kinds of things for two reasons in particular. One was that in first century Galilee, in peasant villages, which is likely the context for Jesus giving this sermon over and over again, I'm sure, in his itinerant ministry throughout Galilee, the, the, there was a system of economic exchange that ruled those contexts, and it was one of balanced reciprocity. We understand this today as well, even though we don't live in a peasant village in first century Galilee. But it was simply the kind of rule of of exchange that you would give to someone else. And in so doing, you would put them in their debt to give back to you in some kind of economic equality, something of economic similar economic value to be given back to you. You would do good to someone else. You would go and care for somebody else because in the system of the day, they were then obligated to come and to care for you. And this kind of balanced reciprocity was what took place in close-knit communities in first century Galilee. We call it, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. So again, it's not that foreign to us. But, but I think in their world, this was much more prevalent and much more understood as this is the way things go. So that was the first thing that was in place in the first century culture. The second thing in the broader Mediterranean world of the Greco-Roman culture in the first century was the patronage system. The patronage system where where you had patrons who had some kind of social, economic, or political capital, um, some kind of riches, and then you had clients. You had the people uh, on whom they would bestow privileges as benefactors, and then those clients would be obligated by virtue of receiving something from the patron to give back to that patron honor, respect, maybe their labor, maybe a portion of their wages, But they would be obligated to this kind of reciprocity back to one. And it would be a a sort of unspoken kind of enslavement that you couldn't get out of. It kept the the ones on top on top and the ones on bottom on bottom. And it was the system that, that that was prevalent. It was the way the world worked. So you have these two contexts into which Jesus gives these words, which granted are radical for us as we hear them but are even more uh, world-shattering, social system-shattering, economic system-shattering for the people in Jesus' original audience. What it means, what those things meant, and whatever combination of those a particular peasant in a particular village would have experienced, it meant that your giving to someone else was not from a free heart. It meant that your giving to someone else was either a repayment of a prior obligation, of a debt that you owed, or it was, in a sense, a down payment on a future return that you hoped to receive back. You were always involved in the the giving, either as the one who had a debt to repay or as the one who hoped to inflict someone else with a debt to repay you. modern-day example of this kind of uh, less-than-free exchange. Uh, Mandy and I lived in Washington, D.C. for three and a half years, and if you're a lobbyist or the son of a lobbyist, forgive me for what I'm about to say, (laughs) but the system of lobbying in the national government in the United States works kind of like this, right? We occasionally hear of the abuses of uh, lobbyists taking congressmen or congresswomen out to 
fancy dinners on you know, Caribbean islands, those kinds of things. But the implication is I'm going to give to you, I'm going to butter you up, I'm going to do something to you so that you'll turn around and take care of me and of my interests. That's the kind of world that Jesus is speaking into. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, you're called to be different. And you're not called to be different by being judgmental. We'll get to that next week. You're not called to be different by being boring or anal retentive or, or whatever else that the world looks at the church and just kind of has this initial response of, well, that's what the church is. And certainly there are those things, or hypocritical or whatever it might be. You're not called to be different because of those things. Those things are an abomination, really, to the kingdom that we're a part of. And, and, and we're implicated in them just as much as any other church in this country is. And, you know, we should confess them and repent of them and walk in a new way. Those aren't the things that are to differentiate you. But you are to be differentiated by this kind of love and generosity and care that is not calculating a lavish kind of generosity. There was another kind of reciprocity in Jesus' day. It was called general reciprocity. And this was a reciprocity that existed between those of close kinship to one another. In a family, for example, where the benefactor would give to the one in need with no expectation of return or, or, uh, or of, of, of giving, getting back, but would give freely, altruistically, for the, the good and the blessing of the one with whom he or she was close. This kind of general reciprocity. Let me throw out an example. What if, your, what if your mom or your dad was in significant trouble? This may be true for some of you even now. What if your mom or dad had fallen into significant trouble? What if your brother or your sister was in a, was in a pretty dire strait? What would you do? What should you do? <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't do it. What should you do? You would literally stop everything. If it was serious enough, if it was significant enough, you would stop everything. You would call your your boss tomorrow and say, I can't be there tomorrow. I've got a more pressing matter to attend to in my family. They call it personal days in the working world. And you would pick up and you would go and you would be near and you would attend to the needs of your family member. You would do that. But the interesting thing is, is, so would your neighbor who knows nothing of the kingdom of God. That's a general way of being human. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 32 to 34. But he says, I want you to do something different than that. So now, it's not just when your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister is in that place of dire need. But now, it's when your enemy, the person that hates you, the person that curses you, that wishes you didn't exist. It's now when that person is in need that I want you to go and to engage and to lay down your life and to serve. Now, there might be some examples of people who know nothing about the kingdom who live in that way, but I assure you that that is not the general norm. And what Jesus is saying is, as you live this way as my people, you will be different from the world around you. 
give you two examples. Uh, I've mentioned this, this man before, Joseph Son. He was a Romanian um, who studied in England after, in the 60s, finished his studies, and decided that God had called him to go back to his home country of Romania to preach the gospel at great cost and risk to himself because it was a communist country that was not amenable to the gospel being preached. And he began to preach, and he began to have a following, and, and, and he was noticed by the communist authorities. And I think I've referenced this before, but one day some, um, some of the authorities from the Romanian government came to his house, knocked on his door, and started to literally ransack his home to confiscate his books. And he was sitting there, and God clearly spoke to him And he got up, instead of just sitting there and moping and moaning for himself, he got up and he went into the kitchen and he put put the kettle on. And then he started to make tea. And then he started to pass out tea to the people who were going around in his house, um, literally turning it upside down. And that made an impression. Another example is uh, the story of, of Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott. Married in 1953, first baby 1955, go to Ecuador in 1956, Jim goes to Ecuador, is killed by a tribe in a remote part of Ecuador, and in 1958, instead of cursing the people that killed her husband, Elizabeth goes with her her daughter to live among the very people that killed her husband, to translate for them the New Testament into their language, to serve them with this kind of love that Jesus speaks about his kingdom followers here in Luke 6. When we live this kind of love, people will literally stop and stare. Their jaw will drop to the floor. They will not know what to do. There will be a difference. There will be a difference. We get... Images of that difference in Jesus' teaching and in the New Testament and other places in Matthew 5 and similar kind of themes floating around in Matthew's version of the sermon. He talks about the church is the light of the world or, the, or the, the light, the city set on a hill. You can't be the light in the world. Philippians 2, Paul talks about shining as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. These things don't actually happen apart from this differentiation. And the differentiation isn't, oh, we're more right, we have our life together. It's that we love lavishly and generously, even to our enemies. That's the mark of the kingdom family. So why do we do this? Verse 35. So Jesus summarizes, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Because at the core of the kingdom, at the core of this life that we live and lead, is a God, apart from whom none of this would make any sense. And that God is like this. At the core of it all is a God who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The simple reason of the why of the kingdom life is because your heavenly father is just that way. And you as his sons and daughters who have been adopted into his family are to now to begin to look like the family of God that you're a part of. That's why. Jesus says God 
is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the, the, the great problem of ungratefulness. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is as he's beginning to indict all of humankind under sin. He says they didn't give thanks to him. They kind of, they kind of pushed God away and moved out in their own way, in their own direction, following their own lusts, and so on and so forth. Imagine if somebody gave you a gift, a priceless gift. Imagine if somebody you know, came into your life tomorrow and, and, and alleviated all the student debt that you had. And you never sent a thank you note. You never acknowledge that in return. That's the ungrateful. It says he's kind of the evil. That, are, that is those who are literally walking in opposition to everything that he's revealed. Those who say, you know, I don't care much about your way. I'm going to enjoy your air, your sun, the body you gave me, the food that you, you, you bring into the world, the stability of the world. I'm going to enjoy all those things, but I, I don't care. I'm going to live in my own way. I'm going to live in rebellion. I'm going to do my own thing. It's the ungrateful and the evil. It's those people. It's you and it's me. To whom our God is kind and merciful. The only claim that we have upon God is a claim for judgment. That's it. That's the only claim that we can rightfully say, God, I deserve this. Give it to me. It's judgment. But how is God known? He's known as a merciful father. To have mercy on someone is not to give them what they deserve. It's not to give them what is justly theirs, but it's to give them the very thing that they do not deserve. God is a merciful God through and through. This is the amazing thing that that the scriptures reveal to us and that Jesus reveals to us. He's a merciful father. So verse 36, be merciful just as your heavenly, just as your Father is merciful. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You know the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, of the son who takes what he he shouldn't take and shames his father and goes off and spends it in all kinds of frivolous ways, living in an ungrateful and in an evil fashion. And the reason Jesus is telling us the story is to show us what God is like. And here on his return, the father goes out and looks for him and embraces him and kisses him and puts a robe around him and kills the fatted calf for him and throws a feast for him. Did he deserve any of that? That's what your God is like. The reason that you're called to live this kind of lavish generosity, this kind of love for the very people who despise you and don't like you, who who make you really mad and upset and unhappy, is because your God does the very same thing to you and to me and to everyone in the world. That's something that they get excited about in the church. This picture of the life of the kingdom that Jesus gives is only rooted and can only happen in light of the the, the knowledge, the awareness, the love, the closeness, the intimacy with a God who is this way in himself. This defines him. He's merciful. He loves when he shouldn't love. That's it. You know, you think about people's conception of God. 
for just a moment. How do people conceive of God? You know, the most common way is probably somebody who's looking down upon them, looking for ways that they've tripped up, looking for reasons to, to, to um, cause them misery. Seriously. Maybe. Maybe they, they look upon God as just this kind of capricious deity who's kind of doing things that don't really have anything to do with their life. But the picture of God, and people see this picture when you and I live this kingdom life, is of one who's loving and generous to a fault in a scandalous way to the very people that push him away, that run in the opposite direction. Do you see the... When people are pushing you, when people are maligning you, when people are making your life difficult and you serve them tea and you give an encouraging word to them and you speak well of them to your boss and you write them a letter of care and concern and affection, do you see it? They'll begin to see the true picture of our Heavenly Father. They'll begin to see the nature of of this God that we serve. I want people to see this God through the people who live and dwell in the kingdom, through the people of this community and Church of the Cross and the church in the city of Boston that's united under Jesus. How we long for them to see this picture of our Heavenly Father. Why the kingdom life? Because this is the way your Father is. But it doesn't just stop there and briefly There is a second reason. We talked about last week the cost of this life. When somebody takes your outer garment, you give them your inner one. When when they ask of you, you give. When they take from you, you don't demand back. You will lose your stuff. You will lose things. And not only that, there's the internal cost of your dignity, of your pride, of saying, no, you deserve my rebuke. You deserve me to come back in kind and in like. This is the way I'm called to live. To give those things up. To silently go as a sheep to be slaughtered. To continue to pour out into love and to be generous. There is a cost to that. But tonight we hear that there's also a reward to that. And don't think you're above this. Jesus wasn't above this kind of motivation, this kind of statement that those who live this way, your reward will be great, he says. Now, maybe it's easy for us to kind of scoff at such a base way of encouraging love and lavish generosity and loving your enemies, all these radical things. But just imagine for a moment that you're being persecuted for your love for Jesus. Just imagine for a moment that somebody's coming into your house and tearing up your library and taking away your stuff. Just imagine that that you're being persecuted. You're being dealt blow after blow after blow. And then all of a sudden, this kind of reward takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? As you see your stuff part, as you see your loved ones hurt and tortured and, not, and, and, and mistreated. Because you've entrusted yourself to this God. And his reward is coming. Thanks be to God. So that you can open-handedly let them take and give and give more. Because your reward is coming. That's a doctrine I want to believe in. The question is, what reward are you living for? You can have the reward of your just desserts now. You can go and respond in kind now. You can go and, and, and fight back now and maybe, maybe, just maybe spare some of your dignity, but you'll lose your reward that day. Or you can give that up 
you can embrace this life of the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be like your heavenly Father. And brothers and sisters, that day when it comes will be a day of such tremendous rejoicing, of exaltation. And it's coming. It's not just coming uh, as in like, yeah, we believe it. It's coming. It's really coming. You will face that day. And as you live that kind of life, your reward will be great. Live for that reward. Live in response to that Father. Bear the family likeness in the power of the Holy Spirit.